Welcome to Seeking Christ in the Scriptures, the teaching and preaching podcast from McConnell Road Baptist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. My name is Matthew Tilley, and I'm the pastor of McConnell Road Baptist, and we're glad that you've joined us for this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the church, please visit us online at mcconnellroadbaptist.org. All right, I want to ask you to find your copy of God's Word, if you've got it in a book or on a cell phone or however you carry it around, uh, go ahead and find the book of Judges. Judges is in the Old Testament, kind of towards the front um, of that, uh, that stack of books there in the Old Testament, and we're going to be in Judges chapter 6. Um, let me for just a second, I'm, I'm going to begin a series here on Gideon's life, and we'll be looking at just a few chapters in Judges. Judges 6, 7, and 8. That's really what we'll be doing over the next several Sunday nights. <clears throat> but let me, just for the sake of helping you, in case you, some of you are Bible scholars, you've been in Sunday school all your life, and you know exactly where this fits in, but it may, take, may be helpful just for a second to set some context about where this chapter and even this book fits into the things. Um, we can start all the way back in Genesis, because it all starts at the beginning. Uh, of course, there's Adam and Eve, and then from Adam and Eve, there's a line, Seth, and that's, God, that's the people who follow after God. And of course, down the line throughout all the generations, there's a man named Abraham. And Abraham is called of God in Genesis 12, I believe it is. He's called of God, and God has some special plans for him, and he says, I'm going to make you a special people. And we can fast forward a little bit there and know that those special people were the children of Israel, the nation of Israel. These are the, we might know them even today as Jewish people. This is what God has set apart. And uh, through a series of events, one of the uh, descendants of Abraham, uh, a man named Joseph, gets down in Egypt. And he's down in Egypt there. Again, the whole series of events around that, but he's down there for a little bit and in slavery, but ultimately God raises him up as he always does his people. Even though they are sometimes oppressed, he raises them up. And um, his family ends up rejoining him down in Egypt. And then they stay there for a while about 400 years, something like that. They stay in Egypt for a while as slaves. And then God gets them out of Egypt. He gets them out to miraculous events. If nothing else is miraculous, he split the Red Sea wide open so they could walk right across it. And then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and, but God has a promised land for them, a special place for them, which is it's the area we now know as Israel. It's that, uh, that little sliver of land right there on the Mediterranean Sea that God has prepared that for them, and they're wandering through the desert until they get there. And when they finally get there, there's a bunch of battles, um, and you'll read about those in the book of Joshua, that a lot of those battles of taking over, uh, over the, um, uh, the, the promised land. But what happens right at the end of that, they, they sort of settle into the land. God marks out different areas for each of the tribes. He says, y'all are going to be here, and you're going to be here, and he tells them where their land is. And they kind of settle in, and God puts over them these people that are called judges. That's what, you, that's what the book is called, the book of Judges, because these are judges that God has put over them as leaders. They're kind of like uh, one of the judges you may be most familiar with is a man named Samuel. He's not exactly a king. He's a little more than a priest. He's got a connection to God, but he's leading the people. He's in that kind of an unusual spot. So there are a lot of people like Samuel that are talked about in the book of Judges. And in this time, they don't have a king. Y'all know King David, right? You know King Saul. 
But this is before that. Any of that really ever happened. So they're just in the land. And one of the things that's marked in the book of Judges is there's a marked, marked idea that the people did what was right in their own eyes. They just kind of did what they wanted to do. That was kind of a, a theme that comes up in the book of Judges quite a bit. But there's a cycle that you're going to that you'll be introduced that you would be introduced to if we were to go through the whole book of Judges. A cycle of these people they're living in the land because God put them there. They're following after God, and then they start getting they start looking around and start following after the gods of the people around them. They fall into sin is what they do. God punishes them. He judges, or it's not a, it's not a condemnation, but it's just like a child. He he, he chastens them. And he puts them, he puts them into some difficulty, some hardship. They realize, oh my goodness, we've made a mess out of things, and they call out to God, God, please help us. And then, of course, God, being loving and kind as he is, he comes and helps them. He rescues them. Usually it's through one of these judges. He sends one of these judges along. And then there's a period of time where they're right with God. They fix everything, everything's good, but then they fall right back to it again. And that whole cycle just goes over and over and over again. Um, before I go much further, I, I can recognize that cycle in my life too. I don't know if you recognize that cycle. The thing is, God is so gracious and he's so loving. And he continues to work with us. He continues to rescue us. He also continues to chasten us when we mess up. And you should say, thank you, Lord. I know that's not easy to say. It's like saying, thank you, Daddy, for the spanking. I don't really, I don't think I ever did that when I was a kid. But looking back, I sure am glad that my mom and my daddy did punish me when I did wrong and showed me right from wrong. And I think the same thing is with the Lord. We have to be grateful for that. But now we're in this spot where there's been a couple of judges already happened. Uh, there will be a few more after this. We're kind of jumping right in the middle of this. And the only reason I'm jumping here is because there's, there's an interesting character by the name of Gideon that some of you may know of. You may know of his battle of 300 men against the Midianite army where they fight with not swords but with pots and fire. That's what they use. It's a weird battle, but you'll see that in a minute. You may know it from that. But I want to look at Gideon's whole life and his whole situation. In fact, one of the things that I've been studying this past week on this, I may end up, if I have the ability to do this at the end, uh, there's actually one more chapter that I may go and look at his son. We may even look at his son as well. I'm still debating on that, but, we, but that is an important part of his life. I want you to see this man. In, our, in my mind, because of the way I've learned about Gideon, he's some great man of God. But I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I don't think I'm hiding anything from you. or I can't, There's no reason to hide anything like this from you. Gideon is not the most valiant man that ever was. Gideon is not even the most faithful man that ever was. In fact, in a lot of ways, Gideon is exactly like the children of Israel he's trying to lead, but God continues to be faithful to him and to Israel through it all. And I want you to, as you see this, I think not every character in the scripture should you identify with, because some of them are actually symbols of our Lord. So there are symbols of, uh, there's some bad, bad guys in the Bible, there's all that, but Gideon is one of those kind of people, I think you could look at him and say, I can see myself right there. I think he's one of those kind of people. And as we go through this, I hope you will do that and, and take the lessons he's, that the Lord's teaching him as lessons that the Lord might be teaching you. So we're going to be in Judges chapter 6, and we're going to look at the first 24 verses um, with these New the Old Testament uh, narratives. Um, 
it's probably not the, it, not the best thing to do is just sit and read it, so I'm going to read it and talk to you about it as we go through. I think that's probably the best way to do it so we can kind of get the story and I can give you the applications as we go along. So that's how we'll do that. But I want to begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll go right into uh, Judges chapter 6 and verse 1. Let's pray together. Lord, I want to ask for your uh, participation in my preaching, not just your participation, but your absolute overwhelming of it. You know that these are words of life, as we just sang, and Lord, I don't want to dilute them or pervert them in any way. I want them to be exactly what you want them to be, what you meant them to be, so they will not find, uh, they will not return void, that they will find their home in the hearts of these men and women that are here. Please help me as I preach, help them as they listen, and help us as we follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I get into it, I should say that I think a lot of Christian people live their lives without really knowing the power of God. And I say a lot of people like it's somebody else. I often live my life without knowing the power of God. We muddle through without having a lot of clear direction. We go through the motions, religious motions a lot of times, but we never really see God do anything. I don't know if y'all can identify with that or not. But I wonder, sometimes I wonder, why is that? Did we just miss it? Did we just miss the bus? Has God abandoned us? Maybe that's what it is. Or is he done doing great things? I've heard so many preachers, and, and I, I, don't, I, I wonder if they're right sometimes. They say, well, we're, God's done. We're no more revival in America and all this. I, don't, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, is that, is that really what the case is? Or is he, maybe this, this, this is where my mind does go a lot, is, well, maybe I'm not good enough. He's looking for something better. He's looking for a better person. And I think Gideon was one of these kind of people who, as best as I can tell, he's a regular guy from a good Jewish family. There's nothing wrong with him or nothing wrong with his family. They're just normal people. He knows the stories about God's amazing work. You can actually see that. We'll get to verse 13. He says there in verse 13 that, um, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? but now hath God, the Lord forsaken us. He says, I know what God has done in the past, but he feels like he's done with, it, with us right now. Whatever was going on in the past, he's not seeing it right now and in this lifetime, but in this passage in verses 1 through 24, God is calling Gideon to something great. It's a call of God's, God on, in his life, and I want you to see that. First, we've got to set the context. Let's go to verse 1. It says, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. Now, I told you there's this cycle that's going on. Israel's back in trouble. The chapters prior to this, chapters 4 and 5, uh, Israel's been saved by uh, a pair of judges called Deborah and Barak. Deborah and Barak have saved them in chapters 4 and 5. And at the end of chapter 5, verse 31, if you just look one verse up, it says the land had rest for 40 years. So there's 40 years has gone by, and everything's been okay. But then in verse 1 of chapter 6, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And what they're doing, all they're doing is they're looking around at the people that are with them, the Canaanite people, and they're just following what they see. They're just looking around, and I think I've talked about this on a Wednesday night. We were in Second Peter and talking about how Lot was one of these people that was just oppressed by the people that were around him, and you and I are both, we are all the same way. We live in this world, and if you're not a little bit affected by this world, probably you ain't doing nothing. You're probably sitting at the house, 
with no television, no phone, just looking at the wall. And if you're doing that, you probably have other problems. Am I right? I mean, if that's all you're doing is sitting at the house looking at the wall, you might be a little off. Let's just say that. But the minute that you engage with anybody, just another person or anything, you're going to be affected by them. And that's exactly where Israel is. They're engaging with the people around them. And what happens? Well, verse 2, the hand of Midian, this, these, this, this other country uh, of Midian, um, has, has come against them, prevailed against Israel. Why? Because, the Midianites, because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens, <clears throat> excuse me, which are in the mountains, and caves and strongholds. So here we've got Israel having this other country, the Midianites, coming against them. Uh, interesting side note, the Midianites, um, Moses, his father-in-law, do y'all remember Moses' father-in-law from the stories, Jethro? You remember Jethro? He was a Midianite. It's interesting, these were actually friendly people to the Israelites until this moment in time for some reason. I think the some reason might be that God had reasons for them to come against them. It says there that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's what Israel did. And because of that, in verse 2, we see that they're hiding. They're in hiding. These people who have just victoriously taken over the land, not, a few, not even a generation or two ago, have victoriously taken over the land. Now they're living in caves because they're worried about the Midianites coming after them. They're hiding from the consequences of God sending these people to judge them. Let's keep reading there. In verse 3 it says, And so it was when Israel had sown, and this sown, they planted their, they planted their, their, uh, their crops. That's what they've done. They planted their crops. So when they plant their crops, the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites, so they got some other people with them, and the children of the east. I mean, there's a bunch of armies here. Even they came up against them. But they did this at a proper, this particular time after there had been, the crops had been sown, And so what's happening is when these people, they're living in caves, they try to plant their crops because they need them to eat, and then they're attacked at this time. So here's Israel not only hiding, but they're barely surviving. They don't even have hardly enough to eat. Keep going in verse 4. And they encamped against them. This is the, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the children of East. They camped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass. They are left with nothing. Everything is gone. Everything that they would consider wealth was gone. So for us to put it into our context, that means you go to the grocery store and the shelves are empty. You come home and the door's kicked in and the television's taken off the wall. I mean, this is the, the, the car is not in the parking lot or in the driveway any longer. They took that too. I mean, that, this is the way that this is, this how, and then not on top of that, you don't even live at the house anymore. You've done went up into the woods somewhere and tried to hide out because you know they're coming after you. This is the world that these people are living in. They're left with nothing. So in verse 5, when they came up with their cattle and their tents, they came as grasshoppers for multitude. I mean, there's just a lot of them. That's the point he's making there. For both they and their camels were without number. And they entered into the land to destroy it. They are absolutely overwhelmed. They have no way to even resist these people. Which is why in verse 6, Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. That word impoverished is an important word. They're impoverished, which we understand on its surface, and it's right, its meaning is that they don't have anything. That's what impoverished means. But the Hebrew word underneath that also kind of gets to this idea that they're empty. They're thinned out. 
they've been brought down a notch or two. That's the idea that they, that, that they are just completely degraded and they're, 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 uh, they, they've been demoralized because of all of this. And I want to call out to you very quickly before I go too much further and make sure you see the application. Why are they there? Verse 1, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Israel sinned against God. This is what sin does to you. Sin gets you to the place where you have to hide. Sin gets you to the place where you're, if you're actually, the, the end result of it, yeah, it may feel good or look good or sound good for a season, but you end up with left with nothing. You're overwhelmed by it. You are impoverished. It takes you down a notch. This is what sin does for us. And verse 7, they do cry out to God. It came to pass, the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites. So they said, God, please help us. We want your help. We want your help. I want you to see what kind of help they get. In verse 8, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. So make sure we're seeing this. These children of Israel, they're in caves. They've got nothing. They barely have food to eat. They're barely surviving. And they say, God, you've got to help us. And what does God do? He sends a prophet. He sends a prophet in in verse 8. And here's what he says. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of, the, <clears throat> excuse me, out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. He's reminding them, you're where you are because I put you there. Verse 10, And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in, those in whose land you dwell, well, what have they done? You have not obeyed my voice. He says to them, he does, the, he does the, the thing that has to be done first. He snaps them back to reality. See, what we want to do, when I'm in my sin and I'm in my mess and I am overwhelmed with it, I want the pain to go away, don't you? I want it to stop. Just, Lord, help me, fix this. And God's saying, he, he does, he'll address it, he'll get to it. But what he does first, he says, listen, you need to know why you're where you are. This is what's called conviction. This is what the Holy Spirit does to us. It's called conviction. He comes and says, Sir, ma'am, you're exactly where you are because I'm a great God and I told you how to live, but you chose not to do it. And you are paying the consequences of living in sin. And pain always comes. I want to promise you this because this is what the Bible promises us, that Pain always comes when our eyes do not follow him, when we are not on him. Because the way of wisdom is to fear the Lord. When we stop fearing the Lord, when we stop obeying him, when we stop doing what he says, when we choose to go our own way, when that happens, there is pain that's going to happen. It is always going to lead to destruction when we follow our heart when we follow our happiness, when we follow our crowd, when we follow the traditions of our, of our past, when we follow our own logic. I, can t I can't tell you, Vanessa could probably could, but I can't tell you how many times I have gotten myself tore up in knots over something stupid because I have sat there and I have I've got the answer. I figured it out. If we do this and that and the next thing, it'll all be fixed. Not once ever consulting what does God want me to do about the matter. 
When we follow our logic, when we follow our happiness and our heart, that's the way to destruction. The way James talks about it in James 1 is that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. When lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, it bringeth forth death. That's exactly where the Israelite nation finds themselves at this point. It's because of their sin, there is destruction. Now, God reminds them of their reality. Now he's going to help them. This is a good thing about God. He's going he's to convict you. You're going to be brokenhearted over it. And then he can say, now I'm ready to help you. That's what happens. This is how that pattern works with the Lord. I'll tell you, if you will ever find yourself in a mess, you'll cry out to God and he breaks your heart, that's when you're ready to go ahead and get something, let him get something done. You're ready at that point. And that's exactly what he does. So the next verse, verse 11, the scene changes. We're in a different place now. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat on an oak, under an oak, which was at or, um, Ophrah, an Ophrah. I always want to put that, I always want to call that Oprah. It's not Oprah. It's Ophrah. Every time I've been reading it, I've been seeing Oprah. It's not Oprah. It's Ophrah. Sometimes you, it's just, yeah, huh? Ophrah. That's where that is. Ophrah, by the way, if, you're, if you want to look at a map in the back of your Bible, if you like to look at these things, uh, if you find the little city of Jezreel, it's kind of in the middle north, north, um, what is that, northwest? <laughs> uh, so y'all are here, so northwest, up there. Um, in middle, middle of the middle of Israel, kind of northwest, find the little city of Jezreel and just kind of look up the road a little piece. It's probably not going to be marked on your map because it's actually not a city today, uh, but it is one, it's a minor, minor area, and that's where it is. It's in the, the area that the tribe of Manasseh had. So that's where that actually is located. But it's a, it's a place that, um, that, that, that this is where, where Gideon lives. This is where his home is. This is where he, he and his family are from, which is why it shows up. And it'll show up a couple of times in these couple of chapters. So this angel shows up and sits under an oak. Now, we don't know how long that angel was sitting there. I like to kind of think he was sitting there for a while while Gideon's doing what Gideon's doing. But I don't know. It doesn't know, tell me how long. But he's sitting there, and it's this place that pertained unto Joash, the Ab, Abbey Ezrite, and his son Gideon, threshold, threshed, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now, make sure we know what's going on here, because this is, this is kind of interesting to me. So first of all, we're at Gideon's home place. His daddy is named Joash. That's the other man mentioned there. He's at his home place. Remember I told you that they didn't have any, any, their crops had been taken? Well, apparently they had a few little places where they got some, some wheat. They had a few places. And what they didn't want to do was draw any attention to themselves. Remember they're hiding out? That's what they're doing. They're hiding in caves and everything. So he's threshing wheat. Now, I can't claim to be a a threat, wheat thresher from way back. So I'm, I, I'm not. I don't know anything about threshing wheat personally. I can read about it. But my understanding is this idea that you're separating the edible part of the wheat from the non-edible part of the wheat. And it really involves a lot of times throwing it up in the air and letting the wind catch the stuff that you can't eat and the stuff that you can kind of falls down. Now just imagine what I was just saying there. I mean, I'm just, I'm making a big old dust cloud. You know, every time I throw it up in the air, I'm making a big old dust cloud because that's the point. So what that does, especially in this hill country, depending on exactly where you were, you might have actually called attention. Oh, wait, there's some Israelites there. So he's trying to hide from the Midianites. So it says there that he is by the wine press. 
Again, I'm also not a winemaker wine from way back either, so I'm not telling you from experience, I'm just telling you what I understand from reading, but a wine press would have been more in a, kind of down in a little bit. So you'd be pressing those grapes to get the juice out, so you're trying to get down into a, into a vat, if you want to think about it that way. So if you could imagine, here's Gideon, threshing his wheat, but he's hiding in a bathtub, for all intents and purposes. He's in a bathtub. He's threshing that wheat. Make sure nobody can see that stuff. That's what he's doing here. He's hiding this wheat. And when, he, when he's doing this, he doesn't, I, don't, I can't imagine he's seeing this, but there's an angel over there watching him do all this. But you've got to keep in mind that Gideon is representing the people in a lot of ways because just like the people are hiding, just like they're scared, just like they're overwhelmed, that's exactly what Gideon's doing. He's sitting there, I'm hiding. Nobody see what I'm doing over here. But then there's an angel of the Lord that's there. It says there he's called an angel of the Lord. Uh, one interesting note about this angel is you'll keep reading through this. Sometimes it's referred to as the angel of the Lord. Sometimes he's referred to as the Lord himself. It's kind of an interesting thing. Some, it just goes back and forth. So again, is it the Lord? Is it an angel? I don't know. We'll read what the Bible says. I happen to believe my personal opinion. There are instances in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ actually appearing to people. He doesn't present as Jesus Christ. He presents as an angel or the angel of the Lord, things like that. I happen to believe that that's who this is. Now, that's my opinion. You can differ with me. We can all be, you know, be happy and be friends if you disagree. But that's what I happen to think it is. But we do know it's, he's referred to as an angel of the Lord. So at the very least, he is some kind of a messenger from God. And this messenger from God says in verse 12, he appears unto him. So here's Gideon been doing this, and finally the angel says something to him. He says, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Now, <laughs> some people, as I was reading on this, when they said uh, mighty man of valor, some people think that the angel was being sarcastic. Some people think that Gideon might have thought he was being sarcastic. Don't know. I think probably a more proper view of this would be that the angel was simply presenting to him, just like I might say, hello, sir, hey, gentleman, you know, something like that. Just being a polite greeting more than just being sarcastic or flattery. But, uh, but however you want to take that, but I can imagine Gideon sitting there hiding in the corner doing his, doing his wheat and like, hey, mighty man of valor. Oh, I don't know, who, who are you talking to? That, that seems a little odd there. But the key message is not the mighty man of valor part, but the first part, the Lord is with thee. In fact, he repeats this statement. If you go down to verse 16, I'm going to skip all the way down to verse 16. And of course, here's where the same person, same person is referred to as the Lord, not even the angel, but just the Lord. The Lord said unto him, surely I will be with thee and thou shalt smite the Midians as one man. So the message that, that this angel slash the Lord is giving to Gideon is, I'm going to be with you. It's not a question. It's a statement. I will be with thee. Now, Gideon, he ain't believing it. He's not believing any of this. Look at what happens here. If you'll see this, he does it twice. Remember, the Lord says, I'll be with thee twice. Gideon says twice. Look at verse 13, this phrase, oh my Lord. Go down to verse 15. Oh my Lord. That, that phrase, oh my Lord, he, he is not saying, it's not just sort of an expletive like, oh my Lord, I can't believe that. It's not what he's saying. But he is actually saying something like, no, that ain't true. That, that's the idea of what the, the phrase there. It's like, you're kidding, right? That's really what he's saying. When he says, oh my Lord, that phrase is the kind of thing where you might, somebody might say something to you and you're like, no, quit lying. Get out of here. That's the kind of idea that he's coming back to this angel with. 
He, he's jaded. He's doubtful because he's in the middle of this. He's in the middle of this. It'd be like if I were to come up to you and say, you know what? We ain't got to wear a mask anywhere anymore. And you're like, yeah, right. Everywhere I go, they're making me, somebody's making a deal about that. What are you talking about? That's exactly what, where he is. He's in the middle of this. He says, oh my Lord, what are you talking about? In fact, he even says in verse 15, when he's having this conversation, he says, oh my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Uh, there's references to his father's house up in verse 11, this Abbey Ezrite, that's the sort of subset of the tribe that they're part of, and my understanding is it was considered to be kind of the, the least of the least families. But there is something that, that Gideon, I think, is even forgetting about his own family. And I want to make sure you all see this too. You know there's the 12 tribes of Israel, but if you go look at um, uh, Israel's sons, they're the, the children of Israel, Manasseh and Ephraim are not sons, they're actually grandsons. Manasseh and Ephraim. You remember this? Back in Genesis, I wrote down the passage, make sure I tell you right. Uh, Genesis 48. Genesis 48. What happened was Joseph had two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. And he brought his two boys into his dad and said, I want you to bless these two boys. And he had rigged it up because he knew his daddy was kind of, had poor eyesight and all this sort of thing. And he'd rigged it up. He wanted them both to be blessed, but he wanted Manasseh to get the big blessing. So he's like, I want to make sure Manasseh goes over here to his right hand, because that's where the good blessings are. And we'll make sure Ephraim gets over here to the left hand. That's where the okay blessings, they're not terrible, but they're not as good. And, and he rigged it all up. This is in Genesis chapter 48. You can go read it, I think, verse 15 and after that. He, he rigs it up to do that. But I don't know if the Lord spoke to, to Joseph, or excuse me, to, to, to Israel or, or how that worked out. But when those boys come up to him, he did one of these. And he put his right hand, right hand um, on um, Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. And the, again, you and I, this is not a thing, like whatever head you want to put it on, whatever. But the right hand was the special blessing. And he was going to put that on Ephraim. Ephraim was the second born. He had no right to the special blessing. But this is something called, there's a Bible word, that it's a very important way to understand this. This is called election. This is what election is all about. You ever heard that term in, in spiritual sense? This is God's right to choose whoever, whenever he wants to do it. And that's exactly what he's done. And Ephraim, or rather Manasseh was supposed to be the tribe that was supposed to be the best tribe. But God put his hand on Ephraim. And the reason that that should mean something to Gideon is because this was in his own family, and he should know if God comes along and he wants to put his right hand on Gideon's head, God can do that when he wants to. God, does not, God is not relegated to certain situations. In fact, God can do whatever he wants to. He uses the least of people to do his work. One of the things I need you all to hear in this point here, and I want to make sure I get this across to you, is throughout the history of the world, I'm talking about all the way to Genesis, where I started this conversation, to 2020, what's today? The 20th of September, 2020, and as far as I know the future to hold, do you know how God works? Yes, from time to time, he does himself present himself. We talked about this morning in the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is going to be on the scene in person. In, uh, in Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in flesh, does walk among us. 
But those are special, exceptional times. You know what God's normal way of working with people is? He picks people like you and you and you, me. He uses people. You know who else, what else he does? He picks people that you and I wouldn't pick. He picks normal people. He picks people that really the rest of the world is done with. He picks people that people would say, you need to put your right hand over here. And God says, no, I think I want to put it over here. That's exactly how God works. He uses people. And I want you to understand, every person in this room, you're listening to me. Those that are watching on the live stream, you need to hear this. If you are a follower of Jesus, God has a purpose for you. And it's probably a lot greater than you've ever imagined it. Not because you're so special. Don't get that. Don't get that. We get that twisted. We're easy, especially, especially some of us preachers. We get really easy about this. We get a big head because y'all are all looking at me like I've got something special to say. So I get like I'm really important. No, no. It's not, it's not about you. It's not about you at all. But God, in his blessing of, the blessing of his hand, he could put it on your head. In fact, I believe he's done that if you're a follower of him. He has put his blessing on you, and he says, I've got something amazing for you. I think sometimes we sell God short on these things, and God's sitting there saying, I'm with you. I'm right there with you. Gideon, Gideon's going to do some amazing things, and that's what this angel, the Lord, is telling him. He said, I've got something for you. You're going to do something amazing, and I'm going to be right there with you through the whole thing. I would encourage you, I skipped over it for the sake of time, but I encourage you to go read this exchange. And that's the whole point of that exchange is God saying, I'm going to be with you, Gideon. You're going to do things, but I'm going to be right there with you. Church, can y'all hear me say that? Can you hear what I'm telling you? God is saying, I'm going to do something great with you individually and corporately as McConnell Road Baptist Church. He's saying, I'm going to do something great and I'm going to be right there with you while you're doing it. It's going to be done, not because you're so amazing. Yeah, you're, you're the, the least of the least. And I think we can make a pretty good argument. No offense to anybody in this room. We can make a pretty good argument that ain't nobody thinking about McConnell Road Baptist Church except maybe our friends and neighbors. And I hope they are, but maybe they are. So I can make a pretty good argument that from a world's perspective, we're the least of the least. But we've got the hand of God has put his hand on us because he chose to. He's decided to, and he says, I'm going to be with you. You're going to do something great, and I'm going to be with you. You know what we're doing over there? Gideon. Pfft. Yeah, right. You don't know who I am. You don't know where I've come from. You don't know how lazy I am. You don't know how cheap I am. You don't know how much I don't want to do that. This is what Gideon is saying to the Lord. And I want you to hear that God wants you to follow him, trust him. He's got something amazing. He will work the wonders through you, but you need to have the trust and the faith to follow him. Paul says in Romans 8.31, if God be for us, who can be against us? This is the truth. You need to hear that. The Lord is going to do an amazing work through his people. That's what he always done. When he doesn't do a work through his people, you know why? It's because his people are too sorry to follow what he's doing. And that happens. That happens. It's happened. I, can tell, I could probably, if the Lord would reveal it to me, it would probably crush me. But I can only imagine the number of times where God was ready to do something through me, but I was unwilling to follow. Can you think about that? Don't, don't, don't let it crush you, but just let it convict you and lead you back to the Lord. Now I want you to see, I've got a few more minutes. I want to get through the rest of this story here. 
Gideon, I don't think at this point, understands who he's talking to. I don't think he is, because if you go back and forth to this, this conversation, you know, in verse 12, the angel's talking to him. Verse 13, he says, Lord, listen, I, I know that God can do amazing things, but I don't think he's with us right now. Verse 14, he says, that the Lord looks at him, he says, you're going you're gonna to save Israel. Have I not sent you? And Gideon's like, I don't think so. He said, my people are pretty poor. Verse 16, the Lord says, no, I'm going to be with you. You're going to smite the Midianites. And then in verse 17, this is where Gideon says, okay, I don't think he understands he's talking to the Lord, but I think he finally is convinced, okay, maybe this guy can help us. Maybe this guy can help us. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, and then he said unto him, this is Gideon talking to the Lord, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Now, I don't believe that he necessarily believes this is God himself talking to him. The reason, you'll see that in just a minute, the reason I think that dawns on him later. You'll see that. But maybe he's convinced this is a visiting dignitary. Not sure why he's coming to talk to Gideon. Maybe he didn't know else to talk to. But you know how maybe some, maybe some king of another land has come in and says, we're going to help you. And so he says, okay, that, that's pretty good. So I want a sign of good faith. That's what he's asking for, a sign of good faith. Could you just show me something that helps me understand we're, we're on the right side here, we're on the same page. And, and as he's asking for that sign, then in verse 18, he says, depart not hence. He says, don't leave me yet, I pray thee, until I come unto thee and bring forth my present and set it before thee. Now, and of course, the, the angel responds. He says, I will tarry until thou come again. So make sure you understand what's going on here. Again, I don't believe that Gideon believes this is the Lord. He thinks this might be somebody who can help Israel at this time. So he says, hang on a minute, brother. Don't leave. I want you to show me some sign of good faith. I'm going to go get you a present. Now, the present he's going to get him, he's going to actually make a meal for him. We'll see that in just a minute. He's going to get him some things, some gifts to give to him. But he's doing a, a pretty traditional Middle Eastern thing where he's going to make a big meal and says, here you go. And he's also going to give him some gifts that he can take home with him. So he does this. And what does he do? The, the gift he gives, uh, you'll read about it in verse 19. He went in and he made, a, he made ready a kid. He, he fixes him a big old mess of goat. So I don't know. That, that, I don't know. I haven't had any goat lately. Um, I, li I like sheep. So maybe it's, I don't know. I don't know if it's the same thing. But anyway, I haven't had goat lately. Uh, but unleavened cakes of, of an ephah of flour and, fresh, and flesh he put in a basket and put in a broth and a pot and brought it out unto him under the oak and presented it. So what, is, what does Gideon do? He goes off and makes this meal. He brings him a gift. The first thing he does is this ephah of flour. I want to point that out to you first. That's somewhere, again, different measures exactly, but it's, it's about 40 pounds of flour. Now, you bring me 40 pounds of flour, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I don't know where I'm going to put it. I mean, I, what do we buy? What is it, about a five-pound bag at the store or something like that? So I haven't bought flour lately. My wife does that, but... Uh, uh, so she tells me to go get it, I'll go get some Martha White, uh, so that'd be good. But, um, but 40 pounds of flour. Now, th that's not a whole lot much in, new to you and me, but don't forget, remember, they don't have anything. They've got no food. He's literally bringing out gold to these people, or to this, to this angel. He's bringing gold to him for all intents and purposes. He is bringing him gold. He's also cooked a, cooked a goat, it looks like he's got a stew with pot, with, in a pot. 
He's got this stew in a pot. Don't know, I, I don't know exactly how he fixed this, but he's got something for him to eat. It seems to me that he's probably got something he could eat right then, and he's got enough to take on the road with him. But the point of all this is to simply say, listen, Gideon is saying, listen, I want to show you good faith that I'm with you. Could you return that to me to somehow show me that we're on the same side? But I want you to see how the Lord shows himself. The angel of the Lord, angel of God said unto him, this is verse 20, take the flesh and the unleavened cakes and lay them upon this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes and there rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now that got somebody's attention right there. He says, I know all that stuff you're bringing to me. Put it on this rock. I want you to set it right here. Tells him exactly how to do it. He takes his stick, his staff that he's using. He touches the stuff. Fire. Now that is amazing. Any way you look at it, I don't care who you are, that's amazing (laughs) that he does that. But even more amazing to Gideon would have been in that culture, that was a clear sign that divine, that the divine intervention, that was a deity consuming an offering with fire. This, while I don't know that Gideon necessarily had in his mind, I'm offering a sacrifice to God, but what he was doing matches up pretty well with what they called a free will offering in the in the in the uh, the book of Moses, books of Moses, a free will offering. And here God takes this free will offering and he consumes it. And when, a, when God consumes the free will offering, you know what he's doing? He's saying, I accept it. That's, that's, that's the sign that Gideon's asking for. And then the minute, minute that happens, he's gone. The last part of verse 21, he's gone. He's departed out of his sight. Now what, that, what happens then is I think reality sets in for Gideon. He's saying that wasn't somebody, some visiting dignitary. That was God. Look what happens in the next verse, verse 22. When the Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, that's why I don't think up until that point he had understood, it says that he now perceives that. When he perceived that, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face, he's sitting there saying, I've seen God. I've seen him. I've been in his presence. And... He knew that that would have been, I mean, just that it's over. You're, you're not going to live any longer. I mean, I'm maybe dead now. I mean, that, he's really under conviction that the Lord is going to do something to him. He, and he's concerned. Can I just, as a side note here, I think sometimes we, we can be a little frivolous with this presence of God stuff. I know I can be. I, what I mean by that is I, I want the presence of God, and I want to enjoy that, and, and, and I want to I feel his presence and, and hear his voice. And I, and I hope you all understand what I mean when I say those things. I really do want that. But the minute that you actually feel yourself in the presence of God for real, and you truly hear his voice, I don't think it's always sunshine and roses. Because he is righteous and he is holy, and you ain't. And when God shows up and he makes himself known to you, if your response is just, whippee, I think you're not understanding who it is that you're in the presence of. 
If, on the other hand, your response is, as I believe Gideon's is, real conviction, I am not, and he is, then I think we're getting somewhere. We're getting somewhere. And what's amazing about this is after he's convicted in verse 22, God gives him peace in verse 23. I think that's just amazing. That's, just, that's awesome to me. You'll ever get to that place where the, that you're just broken by your sin, you're broken by your need, you're in that position where you say, Lord, I know that I am nothing. The Lord always comes along and he will speak peace to your soul. My, my inclination, my knee jerk, when I'm in a mess and I need the Lord, you know what I want? I just want it to be gone, solved like that. Lord, help me feel better. And the Lord said, no, I don't want you to feel better. I want you to get right. Just like if you have a terrible disease, yeah, you want to feel better. That's awesome. But you don't just want to feel better. You want the real problem to be gone. You want that thing that's causing the problem to be gone. It's not just the, the satisfaction that, that, that symptoms are soothed. And God says, okay, finally, you understand who I am and understand who you are. And look what he says in verse 23. The Lord said unto him, peace, be peace unto thee, fear not. Thou shalt not die. God gives him peace. In verse 24, Gideon builds an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom, peace with God. Unto this day, it is yet in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Gideon makes peace with God. And I want to encourage you, that don't, don't ask for God's help unless you really want it. Because you need to be prepared. God's going to do great things. In fact, he uses Gideon to as Isaiah says, to break the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, as in the day of Midian. And when God does work, he's going to do some amazing things. You're going to know it's God. But he's going to upset your apple cart when he does it. He's not going to do it the way you prescribe it to him. That's not the kind of God we serve. Just to bring this back around, I'm going to close. Remember what I talked about up front? Why aren't we seeing God do more? Why aren't we seeing and feeling God's presence? If, in, if Gideon's call is any indication, we need to check on a few things. Is there something between you and the Savior? Have you willfully followed some sinful path that's created the problem that says, I'm not seeing God work? That's where, that's where Israel was. That's where Gideon was. He can, you can sit there and complain all day long, but if you're involved in sin and you're allowing something between you and the Savior, you need to address that. You'll never get anywhere until that's addressed. You'll never accomplish anything until that's addressed. And then you say, well, well no, that's not my problem. I'm not, I don't have sin. It's not my problem. Or I have it, but I'm working on that with the Lord. Okay, fine. Okay, I got that. But have you forgotten that it is the Lord who does the great thing? I think sometimes I start thinking it's about how I need to organize my life better so that I can be a better person to do the great thing. It's not about me doing the great thing. It's about the Lord doing the great thing. He is the one that does that. And you know, he uses ordinary people to do it. He uses regular folk. He doesn't, he doesn't make us into superman and superwoman to do great things. He keeps us regular and normal, and he does the great thing through us. So, yes, we need to deal with the sin, and then once we're in that position, saying, you know, there's nothing between me and the Savior, so I'm not ready to take on the world. No, no, you quit taking on the world. You get in touch with the Lord and let Him take on the world through you.
It's a very different mode of operation. And then finally, I think some of us are hoping that God will work on our terms according to the plans that we've set. I know I do this. Lord, I've got a five-year plan. Could you stick to your timeline, please? I need some things done. Get on it. It's the way I'm thinking. It's not right. It's wrong. God doesn't work that way. He is, as it's been referred to, as a holy, 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 a thrice holy God. He is holy beyond anything you can even imagine. He is the omnipotent God of the universe. He does not need your opinion, but he graces you enough to be part, let you be part of his plans. And you know what my job is, and you know what your job is? Thank you, Lord. <laughs> what you want. And it's going to upset your apple cart. It's not going to be the way you want it. It's going to hurt your feelings. It's going to make you upset. It's going to frustrate you a little bit. But you need to realize he's the one in control, and you just need to go ahead and say, Lord, you can upset any world you want to upset. I'm going to go wherever you want me to go. Let's just do this your way. I'm inviting you to come to God with no demands and ready to see him work. Thank you for joining us for Seeking Christ in the Scriptures, the teaching and preaching podcast from McConnell Road Baptist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm Pastor Matthew Tilley, and I'm so glad you joined us here. But if you'd like to learn more about the church, please visit us online at mcconnellroadbaptist.org.